Hello, and welcome to a pandemic podcast. Welcome listeners to season two of a pandemic podcast. The pandemic is still happening, so we're going to keep talking about it. This season, we've got all sorts of interesting topics that are in the works and all sorts of interesting stories that we're going to be chatting about. Today, you're in for a doozy. We are going to be talking about something that happened in New Brunswick and something that's happening in other places too, which is public officials trying to be held accountable and governments asking questions about what all happened at the beginning and the middle and now this part of the pandemic as well. We've seen very interesting information coming out of Britain, and now we're going to be sharing some information that's been coming out of New Brunswick. So New Brunswick's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Jennifer Russell, was questioned in our Standing Committee on Public Accounts, and she had some very interesting things to say and also not to say. Let's hear from two folks who listened in to the standing committee, and I'm very interested to hear their thoughts because I actually haven't listened to it yet. We're joined by Chris and Kay. Why don't we start with Chris? Chris, what were your thoughts on what you heard at the standing committee? Well, other than grinding my teeth for two hours, it's like you said, there were some interesting things said, some notable absences, and... I think overall, we came out with some questions answered, but also some more questions raised. Generally speaking, a lot of the answers that the Chief Medical Officer of Health gave seemed canned. There was repeated statements about her provision of what she would call advice, very specifically different from recommendations to the various um, portions of government who were working on the COVID response. She said multiple times that her role as a public servant was to provide advice with pros and cons, possible outcomes, possible negative outcomes, and that decision-making all sat with the cabinet. Now, that is a little bit different than I think what most New Brunswickers inferred from the process, in no small part due to some prominent members of that cabinet saying on social media and saying publicly in the mainstream media time and time again that cabinet made no decisions other than to accept or not accept the recommendations of public health. Our then Minister of Education and Early Childhood Development, Dominic Cardi, is practically famous for his sidestepping of any responsibility to implement any kind of protections in schools, saying instead that he was only ever going to act on the recommendations of public health. He also, in response to any suggestions that there might be political interference in the decision-making process during the pandemic, always shot that down saying that public health uh, is a group of experts, uh, that they maintain some kind of academic underpinning for the decisions made in government, and that if government made decisions outside of those recommendations, then they would be acting out of turn beyond the pale. So to have her in that committee meeting say time and again that she did not make recommendations, but rather provided multiple scenarios, advice, and the only time that public health expertise entered into the equation was to predict possible outcomes was a bit of a departure. Now, I remember back when all of this was happening in 2020 and 2021, primarily, 
we had a local politician who was within that cabinet consistently saying, just like what Chris was saying, no, no, we're just looking to her. And then occasionally our officer of health would talk to the media and say, oh, no, no, we're just looking to them. So essentially for listeners, it's that Spider-Man meme of the various Spider-Mans all pointing fingers at each other. I remember people posting it back then of being like, okay, who's doing what now? And clearly that meme continues even within a standing committee in government. Exhausting. It's, it certainly is. And at the beginning of the questioning, the chief medical officer actually gave a bit of a presentation, an introduction in which she had one slide, which was meant to be the methodology of decision making with respect to pandemic policy. And in that, there were some interesting phrases. One that really stuck out to, I think, a lot of people, uh, including myself, was the concept of, quote, unquote, political preferences. One phrase that she used was like a suite of options, right? She talked about how they would present basically a, a gamut of options to cabinet along with what the potential outcomes might be. Yeah, she had mentioned that everything that they had brought was always couched with pros and cons. And every time she brought up any mention of the advice that they gave, it was always with the caveat that these were options only and that no decision-making capability rested with the Department of Health and specifically with public health and very specifically with her. Uh-huh. So she was just giving recommendations, but that we never knew that as the public prior to this standing committee. Um, Kay, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Let's get let's get the whole gang here talking about it. <laughs> sure. So, yeah. So, well, Chris was mentioning that aspect of it. I think it was interesting because she raised that in the beginning with with her 20 minute presentation. And as the two hour meeting came to a close, she started to get questioned on her own feelings and her own judgment about the setup. And so both of the critical parties that were present, New Brunswick's Green Party and New Brunswick's opposition Liberal Party, their MLAs who were asking questions, from what I can recall, they both asked her if she felt comfortable with the role that her office, you know, had during the response and, you know, if it was acceptable to her that she, you know, provide this range of options with the pros and cons rather than maybe some more outright guidance. And she did not say that she was opposed to the setup of it at all. She said she was comfortable with it and she was fine with it. <sighs> Which was really hard to hear because I think when you talk to a lot of public health professionals, they will honestly tell you that budgets have been cut repeatedly, that they don't have the resources that they need. People who are working in public health will tell you that public health is under-resourced, that they need more from their governments. And here's this opportunity for our supposed, you know, top doctor, the person who is at the pinnacle of that public health profession in, in New Brunswick, being asked by the public accounts committee, are you satisfied with the way that your role is placed in the government? And she's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm satisfied. I have no problems with it. Everything's fine, which I don't think her colleagues would share that that sentiment. She was directly asked at one point if she was comfortable with all of the recommendations, all of the suite of options that she provided. And, you know, if there were ever any outcomes that were unacceptable to the options that they provided. And she said no. 
So that really bothered me because as she described it, there she would be providing these scenarios they could choose from, the pros and cons, that whole of society thing that she talked about, where obviously there would be advantages to one scenario and disadvantages. So you could imagine that a scenario could be increasing social contact. And the pro might be that they would expect to see some benefits there with people's mental health, with the economy, with people's job stability, and that the disadvantage might be that you would now have an increased transmission. And with increased transmission, you also get increased hospitalizations, you get increased deaths, you get increased long COVID, et cetera. And she was asked if there was ever a recommendation that she disagreed with. And she said, no. So I find that really hard to accept from a health professional that clearly from her description of it, there were scenarios presented that had more harms to human health than others. And yet she's saying that as a public health professional, she's fine with the outcomes that have more harm to human health. It didn't make sense. I don't think anyone expected it to make sense, but it was really disappointing in reality how little sense that it ended up making. Like you guys have said, this is a departure from what people had assumed about public health. We also don't necessarily know how much of it is true because it was such a slippery delivery. She yeah. was trying to have it both ways for the whole two hours. You know, she tried to make it sound like she was in every room, in every meeting, like her guiding hand was always there. But at the same time, she was never there and she was not present and she was on vacation when such and such an event happened. It was always trying to convey maximum confidence with minimum accountability. You know, yes, I was there. Oh, wait, no, I wasn't. You know, I was there in general, but was I ever there specifically? No, she was never there when there were specific questions about, well, what about this particular decision? What about this particular time? She could describe in great detail how late she stayed at the office, the the day-to-day comings and goings going back to 2020. But then somebody asked her a question about 2022 and she was like, oh, that was so long ago. It did not make any sense. It was hard to watch. That's for sure. I think you're exactly right where you point out that everything that she was trying to cobble together was this sort of surreal structure of public health being beyond reproach, specifically her role as chief medical officer. Every answer was either we did everything right and she was very happy and proud of of the outcome and, and everything that had gone on, or it was we had no ability to affect anything in that specific case. And those two just don't match up with one another. Which was it? Which was it? Did public health do anything or didn't that? There are a few phrases even in her delivery that were so obviously canned just because she had said them so many times during that entire two hour process. But they also didn't come from her. There was one that she mentioned a few times, uh, the concept of the options being in favor of the whole of government and the whole of society. That was a phrase she spit out a couple times, and that is a direct quote from Bruce McFarlane. So he'd be the communications (laughs) fella from public health. So that was a direct quote from something that communications people within public health were putting out to the mainstream media following Mm. the Auditor General's report, which found that actually Jennifer Russell, the Chief Medical Officer of Health of New Brunswick, sat at the very bottom of the information and decision-making hierarchy. Hmm. 
So that's very interesting because I was just prior to you saying that I was thinking it sounds like she's basically saying all the good things that happened. Yes, that was definitely me. Any bad things that happened? No, no, no. I wasn't involved. But now it seems like she wasn't involved and she's just kind of trying to take credit for some of the good things. Some degree. I think one of the most surprising things that came out of the Auditor General's report on the pandemic response in New Brunswick was the fact that, according to what he found, the chief medical officer of health, arguably the most recognizable face and recognizable position in response to the pandemic in New Brunswick, sat at the very bottom of the decision-making hierarchy. Her first statements in the standing committee and many statements throughout it were reinforcing the fact that, yes, everything that existed in the structure was above her, but also she was involved at every point of that structure. So she had meetings with cabinet. She had meetings with the COVID well, the core. Co- the COVID core. Yes, yeah, the, the COVID mysterious core. COVID core. But with all these entities within the hierarchy, she was having regular meetings and she was always present in the room whenever anybody was making a decision on the pandemic. But just to pump the brakes on that, she would always say again that she didn't actually provide any recommendations in any of those rooms, only that these were some options, these were some information. And we know from our investigations into these things that a lot of the information that was coming through to her over the course of the early pandemic with respect to mitigation issues, with respect to long COVID, with respect to airborne transmission, we're going to her and not going any further. So that adds another layer of implausibility to a lot of her statements. I find it really upsetting because, Chris, you've mentioned this before, there is this manufactured authority that rests with this position of chief medical officer of health that person is a physician, they have a medical degree, and that is what everybody uses as this sign that this person is responsible and ethical and that their actions are going to be done with the health of the public as the goal, right? And and everybody's just like, well, she's a doctor, right? She's a doctor. (laughs) That's the justification. That's all you need, right? So as this chief medical officer of health position, all of these communications from the Public Health Agency of Canada, from CADETH, from these different information entities that are providing the evidence, the factual information that she's supposed to use to inform her decision making, it it all goes to her. You're right. And it's just funny timing. Actually, I don't think there's anything funny about it. I don't think it's a coincidence, but In New Brunswick, we have two different health authorities that run our hospitals. And the biggest one is called Horizon Health. Just this week, they put out a video, a social media video with a physician. And the person doing the camera work says, hey, I'm living with somebody who's under the weather. How can I keep from getting sick within my household? And this physician in this social media video is in the hospital, is not wearing a mask, does not once mention the possibility that if somebody in your home is sick, that you or they might want to wear a mask. Of course, doesn't mention anything about ventilation, opening windows, filtration, talks about hand hygiene and surface cleaning. I, I don't think it's a coincidence. They're, they're just really reinforcing the droplet aspect of things. And I was watching this video on YouTube and I looked down at the bottom 
And there was this special verification bar that said Horizon Health Network is a public health unit in Canada. And so in this designation was given by the World Health Organization. So in November 2023, you can see really inaccurate health advice be given to the public by a physician in New Brunswick. And at the bottom, there is this little bar that basically says we're beyond reproach. This is the trusted, branded, verified World Health Organization partner organization. This is where you can get your trustworthy health information. Seeing that has just about broken me because it's just so poor. I I don't think I would care so much if the stakes weren't so high, but people do not know what they need to know to stay safe. And you can put the blame 100% on public health provincially and also on the medical society, on the health professions as a whole, their associations, their unions, they could be doing so much better There's just no excuse for it. And it's really disgusting. And then to see them continue to hold these signs of trust that say to the public, we're on your side. You can trust us. Ooh, it's, it's really bad. It's, and and this is a, this is a perspective, like a chronic health and illness perspective. A lot of folks that I've talked to and myself who have encountered the medical system firsthand consistently for a variety of issues for a number of years, we know that there's no one doctor that knows everything. I remember even just not thinking about chronic health issues when I was pregnant for both my kids. I went to a pregnancy center and there were nine different doctors on rotation. I think I saw most of them throughout the time. I remember one time I went in and one of the doctors was like, oh, okay, now what's going on with this and this? And I was like, oh, well, the doctor last month told me this. And she was like, oh, oh, no, no, no. And then she told me something else. <laughs> so doctors are people. This True. may be shocking. <laughs> uh, from a disability perspective, I was curious to hear how you feel with this whole of society thing, that that line that Chris pointed out, because it did get repeated. And yeah. it, it seems to me, vulnerable people, disabled people, people at risk, marginalized people are somehow excluded from this whole of society lens that was used to decide that all of a sudden the risk would be raised for everybody without warning them or providing them with the oh, tools yeah. that they need. Nothing new. <laughs> yep seen it, expected it, not surprised. Something that really changed my perspective was when it was around the first six months of the pandemic in 2020, when people first started talking about comorbidities, when we started hearing about deaths, people were asking, well, what about their comorbidities? What pre-existing health conditions did they have? And then if there was any, their death was immediately dismissed. It was disgusting. And it showed me that if I were to die from COVID at that time, my death would be, oh, okay, she had pre-existing health conditions. And it's almost like those numbers didn't count. One thing that struck me during that committee meeting and has been kind of itching in my brain for a long time 
is along those lines. We saw fairly early on, I think the first time when New Brunswick started to consider lifting protections, the invocation of the social determinants of health. And this concept was put out there to underscore the importance of more than just physiological health with respect to COVID infection. Very specifically, isolation and depression and, 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 and uh, increases in substance abuse. You know, these kind of issues that were soft issues on the peripheral of the pandemic, which were being impacted not only by the presence of the pandemic, but by our response to it. And it started laying the groundwork for public health to talk about the addition or removal of protections with a lens for something beyond just what are the metrics for the actual pandemic. Social determinants of health was brought up again in our chief medical officer of health's questioning during the meeting, where she discussed how there was an importance to consider the social determinants of health when it came time to remove all of those protections. But the whole of society, quote unquote, approach is only taken into account to broaden the perspective of decision making to be able to include things like the economy or things that benefit rich people, able bodied people who don't want to deal with marginalized groups of individuals who are disproportionately affected by removing protections. We hear the social determinants of health being uttered as definite reasons for getting rid of masks or getting rid of pandemic protections that would limit to some degree some people's ability to do their day-to-day -day things. The thing that really sticks with me is that those same concepts the whole of society concept is never brought to the table to broaden the lens of the pandemic response onto people who are disproportionately impacted. The disability community, for example, and the social determinants of health are never, ever considered with respect to how isolation, depression, substance abuse all of these things are impacted when people are affected by an out-of-control pandemic, which diminishes their physiological health, which may put them in a place of precarity because they can no longer earn a living, which pushes them into a place where they might be experiencing food insecurity or houselessness. These are social determinants of health on the downstream end of removing pandemic mitigations that are never considered. We never hear them talked about. Only as a way to open a door to get rid of these things are the social determinants of health brought up in conversation. Right. Yeah. Why are the social determinants of health only ever used so that we can have hockey tournaments again or we can have bingo? But the social determinants of health, like it's never talked about when it comes to the ways that uncontained viral spread has actually harmed people. And I know we're a smaller segment of the population, but I can say that personally, my mental health has been horrific. Learning that entire public system is not accountable and will not incorporate evidence. They're just going to do what they want to do, regardless of how many people are harmed and in which ways. And like that just makes me want to not participate in society. You know, I'll, I'll never be a high performing employee ever again, because why would I? 
it really just shows you that there is evil and that evil has risen to the top of, of all of these different departments and structures and institutions. And it's just that uh, desire to just walk away and not participate in structures that harm people and pretend that they're not yeah. like, so even just mentally, the challenges that we all have trying to continue to get up every day and do the bare minimum of what we have to do in our different roles as parents, as, you know, artists, as people knowing that they are doing this on purpose and that it's an active choice, you know, like we are wrapping up four full years of pandemic and there is no effort to improve outcomes at all. No one is even pretending anymore. It's, it's very difficult. So even just, even just for the, the mental health, trying to deal with this, this state of things is really bad. I really liked what you said, Kay, where it's like evil has risen to the top. Because when you first asked, you're like, how did this happen? It's because the systems in, that we have in place allow for that to happen. And why was there such a push for people to be able to send their kids to hockey games? Because the people in those decision-making roles are people who send their kids to hockey games. We have no equality and representation within this current system. There's no equity-seeking measures for representation of people. How many people within the COVID crew committee identify as someone with a disability? I would wager zero. And it's exhausting because these decisions that are made that affect everyone disproportionately harm numerous groups of people. And usually those groups of people have zero representation in those decisions. Yeah. And you can see this when you when you take a step back and, and you look at the flow chart of how this thing evolves with an office of public health raising social determinants of health, basically psychological impacts of their actions as a reason to remove protections to improve those social determinants of health. And we take a step back and we say, okay, well, what groups social determinants of health are being improved and what groups social determinants of health are being negatively impacted? And that's a pretty easy division to see. It's marginalized people. And you could say, well, is there some kind of act of dismissal or indifference towards those people you know, on the parts of the decision makers? I'd actually say that's probably built right into that system. That system that we have that does all of this work, whether you have one person in a seat or another, is really built out of that kind of indifference towards a smaller group of people with larger needs who are not represented at all in the decision-making group. They never have been. And, and just to bring it back to what we saw from our chief medical officer of health, she'll take the praise for good decisions, but oh no, she was just one of many people in the room when something didn't go to be praiseworthy. And that's the thing too, is who are all those other people in the room? 
all of those other people in the room are people who had the ability and opportunity to go to post-secondary or just even to finish their secondary schooling, go to post-secondary, be able to have full-time jobs, have the ability to do that, have the ability to rise within the ranks and have those networks and connections with the various folks. Like, It's interesting because there are some people within that system who do work hard and they do all the things. And when the system gets questioned, they feel personally offended. And it's like, I'm not saying that you didn't work hard. And there's definitely some people that don't work hard. But I'm not saying that everyone doesn't work hard. But what I am saying is there's some people who could work their absolute hardest and never be admitted into that door. Mm. I have an aspect of the meeting that I would be interested to talk about. Yes, please. As I was thinking about it today, I started to think about the public accounts standing committee meeting as a performance. And I will admit, I have not watched other public accounts meetings. So I don't know how typical any of this is, but there were so many performance aspects of that meeting. And one of them was the complicit Barbie outfit that I think was an intentional message. It it was probably coached just like the stock phrases were. I found it interesting that Dr. Russell was not alone receiving the questions. So sitting kind of beside her and behind her, there was the deputy minister of health and there was an epidemiologist. And I don't know if that's standard for public accounts committee meetings that that the person being asked questions would have people sitting with them. And I don't know, it was, they were never, the role there was never explained in the meeting. They were introduced, but wasn't said why they were there. And I I found myself wondering after, like, were they there to keep her in line, to keep her from saying anything that the government didn't want her to say? Were they there for us or were they there for her? Why were they there? What was their role? Um, So that that was interesting. And I'll just explain. I mean, I certainly don't expect people to go and watch it. You can if you want to. But the order of the speakers was kind of interesting because the opposition liberal got 15 minutes for questions first. And then immediately when those 15 minutes were up, it switched to the progressive conservative MLA for the questions. And then the third person that got to ask questions for 15 minutes was the Green Party. And then it rotated through one more time. So it went back to the opposition liberals. So the effect that that had on the momentum of the meeting was very striking because it took the liberal MLA a little while to build up the steam with the questions. It seemed like they started slow. And Dr. Russell was 100% stalling for time, trying to drag out her answers as long as possible so that she would ultimately face fewer questions because it was all based on these 15 minute time limits the meeting was only ever going to go for two hours. So she really got away with keeping him from asking certain questions by making things take longer. And then after she got through his questions, it went to the friendly MLA, which was so interesting to me because this is supposed to be a public accounts committee meeting. So surely the progressive conservatives would have some questions about the use of public money in the pandemic relating to this Auditor General's report. But the PC guy just bond over her and asked her really easy questions about stuff that she liked talking about, which you could see her just relax. Through all of it, I mean, it was it was very challenging, but we got through it and we got through it um, 
really because of the recommendations that you brought forward, Dr. Russell. So we thank you for that and appreciate your hard work over that period of time. It's um, really remarkable. So I guess I'm curious if you could share with me like your account or your recollection of you know the the beginning stages and what your daily what your day looked like at the very be beginning of COVID, both kind of professionally, personally. Just two points that I'd, I'd like to make, and they don't uh, they don't even need a, a response. She just got to run her mouth about stuff she was comfortable about without having to think about it. And it, it really took the tension down in the room, really took the pressure off. And I feel like it was sort of hard for the Green Party to ramp it back up again. So that was a performance aspect that I found was really interesting. And, and if you go to watch the meeting, like you can really see it because there's some, I'll leave Chris to probably introduce the most tense moment, but it was so dramatic. And But he was at the end of his 15 minutes. And so Mr. Fluffer, the, the PC MLA, like came in and asked the fluff questions. And it was so obvious that his role was to calm her down. That's what his role was. His role was to calm her down and to allow her to just blah, 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 about inconsequential, low yeah. stakes, positive things. It was striking. And like, I am not a political minded person in the sense that I don't have a strategic bone in my body. I don't. What you see is what you get. I do not operate on multiple levels at once. I operate like the heart is on the sleeve and that's what you're seeing and that's what's there. And so for me to be able to notice when other people are setting up shifty, slippery things, I think it has to be super blatant because I can be very oblivious. So from a performance aspect, I found that really interesting. And there might've been, oh yeah, there was one more performance part that I wanted to point out. Dr. Russell got questioned whether or not she would have done this research. And her answer was, usually I would. So when you made those claims in February, March, that masking was harmful to children, <coughs> you would have had data and research to back up those claims when you made those claims? Usually I would. So I would say yes, but... Um that's where, um, again, off the top of my head at this time, I, I can't speak exactly what happened in 2022. That is not an answer. And so it really brought it home to me that what we were watching was not a trial. These were not lawyers. These were MLAs doing their best. And my God, I wish we'd had the opportunity to get New Brunswick's decision makers in an actual trial because that showed me that at least our chief medical officer of health would fall apart on the stand. Now, we didn't get to see legit pointed questioning necessarily because that aspect wasn't really followed up. That was an acceptable enough answer at the time for them to move along from that. Usually I would. That slipped under the radar, but that's not the right answer. You know, like that was fascinating to me. Yeah. Mm hmm. And, and to speak to how those meetings usually go uh, and the people present, usually it's a department that is being questioned, not an individual necessarily, uh, not a specific role. I think they targeted the chief medical officer of health because that position versus her department was inferred to have such a critical amount of input into the pandemic response. And her answers suggest that maybe that wasn't the case. 
But usually what happens is that a department will send its key representatives there. We saw that when the when the standing committee first questioned the uh, executive council office uh, in the same way about pandemic response. And then we learned more about the quote unquote COVID core and what the executive council office, what their role was during the pandemic response. Usually what happens is you have sort of a key individual who oversees that office and they have their key people there. The key individual representing the office will answer many questions and will defer those questions to people who are under them, who may have more information or better quality information about a specific question. With our chief medical officer of health, she didn't bring people who worked under her during the pandemic. She brought the people who she worked under during the pandemic, and they didn't answer any questions. They had a discussion there at one point, and we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. Uh, but just I wanted to comment on that strange questioning that we saw from the conservative side of the House. I don't know that that was purposeful, but it was certainly ineffective and inconsequential. From the Liberals and the Greens, we saw questions, what was the reason for this? Why did you do that? Do you think about this? Was there political interference? And when it switched over to the government side, where they went, oh, you know, was it hard being the chief medical officer of health? How did you feel? And it was sickening. It was just sickening. Because even when the executive council office was there, the sitting government had questions about, like you said, okay, finances, uh, the spends involved in some of these policies. But with Russell, it was just, oh, um, so we're so proud of you. And and we just can't believe we get to, to will you sign my yearbook? It was, it was just yeah, I- terrible. One thing we definitely want to touch on, which was probably the most tense portion of the entire two hours, was during the final questioning allotment given to the Liberal Party, the Chief Medical Officer of Health was asked directly following a statement that there are some people who are concerned that the Office of Public Health and the Chief Medical Officer of Health have not publicly acknowledged that COVID is airborne. She was asked to state her position on this. And in a departure from the entirety of the rest of the proceedings, all of her answers were immediate, forthcoming. They were all mostly canned and practiced and with very little substance, but they were always immediate. Very peculiarly, at this point in time, when asked for her position on the question of COVID being airborne, she muted her mic and there was silence in the chamber for over a full minute while she discussed this with the people that had accompanied her to the proceedings. And I'm sure everybody else watching this was biting their lip and wondering what was going to happen. When she came back, she talked for a long time about the importance of ventilation and how ventilation decisions were with the different public entities and and, and dodging things again, saying that things were important, but not important enough for her to have any decision making in. So with respect to um, ventilation in schools, uh, there was a working group. I was very satisfied with the work that was done there. Um, With respect to moving forward um, and um, to acknowledge Ms. Mitten's uh, comment about long COVID and and how we can't really treat it like other respiratory illnesses because of that, uh, we're not treating it like other respiratory illnesses. We are... Um, approaching it in terms of how we report and how we respond um, 
uh, to it with respect to other respiratory illnesses in terms of communicating how to protect yourself with respect to vaccination, et cetera. And that was it. Timer ran out and they were going to go over to the other side so that she could be asked about her feelings again. And the liberal MLA said, hold on, hold on. My specific question wasn't answered. I asked about COVID being airborne. So the chair of the committee allowed her to answer the question. There was a part of my question that wasn't answered about about COVID being airborne versus droplets that I had. And I, I don't think you addressed that in your answer. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, I, again, I stand with my colleagues across the country in terms of what uh, the evidence shows, and so that's my uh, answer. Uh. When we heard that, I think the air went out of the room for a lot of us because we were hoping to hear an acknowledgement of the fact that COVID is airborne, and we were received this weird, vague statement about being in solidarity with a bunch of other people <laughs> whose opinions we have no idea because they also have never publicly stated whether COVID is airborne or not. I stand now, with my is... colleagues across the country in terms of what the evidence shows. Like, what is that? And this is after that one minute of silence too, right? This yeah. is after uh, extensive consultation. And and I'll note too, that they were definitely using their phones because at various points you can see them texting and you can see their screens lit up. Then the phones are in front of them with the screen lit up. So there's some element of reading answers that were either approved by somebody or provided by somebody. Yeah, it, oh, was, no. it was really shocking to hear that. So at that point, questioning returns to the government side and the chief medical officer is again lauded for her performance and coddled for being a hero under immense pressure and these sorts of things. And following that display of it seemed like a bunch of teenagers with crushes, <laughs> uh, the questioning goes back to the Greens. Just before the Green MLA is able to ask their first question, the chief medical officer interrupts and apologizes for not being clear and asks if she can clarify her statement on COVID being airborne. At that point, she fumbles through an obviously just then constructed answer along the lines of, there are many ways that COVID is transmitted, including large droplets, which fall on surfaces and then get on hands and then get on up And then in she did a grill. demonstration. She yeah, did she a did demonstration it. with yeah. her hands and her face, which the amazing part is, it shows that they don't actually understand how fomite <laughs> transmission happens because she can't even demonstrate. Like, she's just just waving her hands in front of her face and she just kind of trails off because it's like it's like okay like Lindsay Marr just actually did this experiment with artificial skin when you press simulated skin onto a contaminated surface and then you try to see if that will transfer the virus it doesn't do it so like it's just a lie it's not actually backed up by evidence and there she is trying to do a demonstration with waving her hands in front of her face to show how fomite transmission works except that even the CDC says that fomite transmission of COVID is exceptionally rare and there's actually no proof of it. There is yeah. no evidence for fomite transmission, but she's sitting there waving her hands in front of her face, showing fomite transmission. <laughs> I can barely handle it. So anyway, yeah. and then though, then she continues. Yeah. And, and, and that element, that strange pant 
to mind was like, again, another performance that was trying to lend credibility to everything that has been stated by public health for the past four years, saying that, yes, hand washing is the way that we're going to beat COVID. She performed that. That was her performance piece in the legislature right there, showing people her literal song and dance about washing your hands. So after putting that out there, putting a firm, loud, lengthy statement about fomite transmission in large droplets, she says also sometimes there's small droplets and those small droplets can be airborne. I just want to jump in. Can my, may I just clarify? I'm very sorry. I was not clear in my answer about your question about the transmission of COVID and um, the the evidence around around this. So there are many ways that COVID is transmitted, including fomites, which which is droplets on surfaces um, that get on people's hands and then they you know they, it's transmitted that way. Large droplets as well as small droplets, and those small droplets, yes, can be airborne. And the timestamp on that for anyone who wants to go see it is one hour and 41 minutes and 38 seconds. So you can see the whole song and dance. And it's it's interesting because, of course, that primacy is given to fomites and droplets being listed first, being extensively discussed. And then yeah. at the very last second, a teeny tiny mention of tiny small droplets, you know, like yeah. at, which <laughs> is the inversion of actually how predominant each mode of transmission is. It's yeah. predominantly if not exclusively, it's predominantly airborne. And two years ago, we might have been picking up odd studies and little tiny bits of pieces to say this. Two years later, two years after Dr. Tam's statement at the Public Health Agency of Canada on the website, November 12th, 2021, Dr. Tam released a statement talking about the role of aerosols. It's been two years and it took her two years to ever say anything about airborne aerosols to the public and it she only did it when pressed so it, it was just it was really quite something and timing wise again the kind of performance the structure of this thing because she slipped that in there in between the pc questions and the green questions this is one of the moments where it's almost like it took the green mla megan mitten by surprise too because you know she was like oh i was just about to ask you that you know, thank you for confirming that COVID is airborne. And she kind of, she was relieved as I think we all were to finally hear these words, but this is where there's a strategic error I think was made because what I think the world and certainly Canada and New Brunswick would have liked to see her ask would have been, oh, thank you for acknowledging it's airborne. When did you first become aware of airborne transmission? What have you told departments within the government about airborne transmission? What have the health authorities been told about airborne transmission? What has the public been told about, you know, like those follow-up questions that's what should have been asked or that's what I would have liked to see asked. And that's not what happened. But, you know, this is me. I'm sitting in a literal armchair right now, armchair quarterbacking the questions. So it's a quite a remarkable moment. I know that some people kind of poo-poo it saying like, oh, she just barely slipped it in there and she really minimized it. But it's like, I don't think that that matters. I think what matters is that it got said it all, as well as you can clearly see that it was the number one uncomfortable topic for her. That one minute of silence and Ryan Murphy put on Twitter this great video of the end of the question being asked. And like, this is a class in response time. She actually sticks her hand out there and hits the mute button before a full second has elapsed. It was immediate. And then he has a timer 
that runs over the full silence. <laughs> so like, it's so obvious that there's wrongdoing here and there's, you know, this is where the bodies are buried, like flashing red sign. And it, I find it also remarkable that no members of the media in all this time ever asked directly any of these people about airborne tra transmission. And we begged them to, we've emailed them, we've given them so many different citations. We've given them so many sources. I, I find it supremely weird because I've mentioned, you know, Lindsay Marr's work and, uh, at the very end of October, uh, Dr. Lindsay Marr, aerosol scientist, had a big piece in 60 Minutes talking about airborne transmission, which is really impactful. So I find it really interesting that like CBC has had on various guests that talk about airborne transmission. They've had Colin Furness, they've had David Fisman, they've had Lindsay Marr, all on CBC New Brunswick. They've had Joey Fox, they've had Ontario Society of Professional Engineers. So for some reason, it seems like it's okay for CBC to interview guests about airborne transmission, but no journalist will directly ask anyone involved with health or any politicians about airborne transmission. And it, I don't know what the block is. Is. What is going on there that they will not or cannot ask? It's, I don't understand it. And so that for me, I felt vindicated seeing her say yes, airborne. But I also felt really sad that like we've been trying to get the media to ask this question for two years and it never happened. And, and once yeah. it did happen, eventually it got answered. Oh, I guess I'm just kind of thinking in some, it seems like... For folks who watched it or for folks who will watch it, there's definitely some takeaways. Thoughts on takeaways from all that? <laughs> so unfortunately, there was not a lot of substance in the answers that we saw from this. And that really, I would say, most likely falls on the fact that they had a very limited amount of time. They had very limited opportunity to build a line of questioning that would result in something of substance. That said, we did experience the first provincial chief medical officer of health state publicly that COVID is airborne. Granted, the method that she used to make that statement was a brilliant example of plausible deniability in the fact that she was so vague with it that at any point in the future, she would likely be able to go back if questioned further and say, no, 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 I didn't say it was airborne. Or if questioned in the opposite way, she would say, yes, of course, I said it was airborne to run the clip. Probably the most important thing, and Kay was mentioning this just a second ago, is where we branch off from this. All of the local media has reported on this and say, hey, Jennifer Russell, Chief Medical Officer of Health, acknowledges airborne transmission, and that's it. What's most important here is that that's not the last step in a objective pursuit. It's the first step of what happens next. Obviously, acknowledging that COVID is airborne requires us to re-examine how we approach mitigation of this virus and how the government is responsible for assisting with that mitigation. Again, it's not the final piece of the puzzle. It's the first and we need to make sure that all of our past actions, ours being our province, the government, the public health, all of those past actions are now viewed through the lens of acknowledging COVID is airborne and scrutinized. And all of our actions going forward, being the actions of public health, being the actions of the government and lawmakers, should take into account that acknowledged fact so that we are operating in a way that is true to the science and true to what we are actually trying to battle in our communities. That was well said. 
one thing that we should note is that Dr. Russell has resigned. She resigned prior to the Public Accounts Committee meeting. And so I do have to wonder how much the fact that her last day on the job is in early December, how much of her communication during the Public Accounts meeting had to do with the fact that she is leaving the role. Was she the first one to purposefully, intentionally say that COVID is airborne? Is she kind of getting out like the godfather? Like, was this her kind of tossing the public a bone as she gets out of the of the chief medical officer of health role where they clearly have each other in some kind of power struggle? You know, when her answer to that question initially was, well, I stand with my colleagues across the country. Well, it really, for me, shows a lot of the facade and the farce that is ongoing with the way that, oh, well, the provinces are in charge of healthcare, but here we have these chief medical officers of health, but they're all on this committee together. And Dr. Bonnie Henry in BC is the chair of the committee. And so how much independence do these medical officers of health in each province and territory really have? If when she's questioned on something so key and fundamental as airborne transmission, if her response is to like defensively be like, well, I stand with everybody across the country, my, all my colleagues, like I think that it should raise a lot of questions around the role and how the public is actually being served by that role. What forces are at play behind the scenes in keeping all these people silent on airborne transmission when the White House and the States just threw out in March 2022, they just threw out this whole like webinar chat on the fact that it's airborne and the fact that we need to improve ventilation. And they just threw it out there. And then Canada just hasn't said a word by any of the chief medical officers of the health. It is a farce. It's a charade. It's a performance. And I think that the public very much so deserves answers to how this has been handled province to province. And why are the chief medical officers of health from each province and territory all united in this blockade of information on airborne transmission? And it raises so many questions. So I'm really glad that you mentioned all about where we go next. And unfortunately, in New Brunswick, we have an acting deputy chief medical officer of health. And now our chief medical officer of health is leaving as well. It obviously is not a job that many people want. Where does this leave the public? We are going to be facing down December, January, February, months where we're going to be contending with unmitigated COVID, but also influenza, RSV, enterovirus, adenovirus, all these different viruses in a population whose health is only worsened as every year passes because people are just being reinfected over and over again. Where does that leave us? She has given this information finally that it's airborne and yet we're seeing long-term care homes on outbreak because school children are entering them without masks to give performances for the residents. So at some point, this has got to translate into action and somebody has to be accountable and responsible and start filtering the air, especially in long-term care, filtering the air in schools. Respirator masks have got to be explained to the public. They've got to be made available. There's so much work to do. And you look at that Department of Health and are they going to do it? I don't know. So we certainly saw a variety of interesting performances in that public accounts meeting. Like, I feel very encouraged and also like, ah, <laughs> at the same time. 
hearing you both talk about the committee meeting, my thoughts are really that I would say for listeners, probably a good idea. If you want to watch it, watch it like online with a friend. So then you can uh, share your critiques on it as it's ongoing. (laughs) Definitely don't turn it into a drinking game because our hospitals are currently uh, at a shortage. (laughs) So that would be dangerous. But I think ultimately it shows some good things. It shows the farce of it, but it shows the seeds of truth in it too. And like Chris said, and Kay, is it shows the beginning of the questions being asked. And now where do we go from here? You got to have to look for the positives there. And I think there's something where I would say for listeners, since you're already listening to this podcast, you're already becoming informed in what's happening. Apathy is never the way to watch something and say, oh, well, that was foolish. Next. No, 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 no. That was foolish. Now, where do we go from here? We all can go somewhere from here. We can all continue questioning. We can all continue learning. We can all continue researching. And just look at all the stuff we've learned right now. It's pretty incredible. So thank you. This was really a lovely chat. Frustrating at times. But overall, though, like I feel invigorated. I feel like I really want to do more and I really want to learn more. I feel really good in knowing that sound sources and the importance of getting the information from people the most impacted by these actions is so important. So listening to the people who are the voices on the ground, those are the sources that we want to look to on many different issues. I feel good in knowing that there's so much information out there, just sometimes it's not coming from the most expected places. So thank you. Thank you for listening. We've got some good stuff coming up this season. Bye.